Well, we greet you in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's certainly been a blessing to travel here today. And uh, it seems like we've been around the world today, almost. But we're thankful that God is the same everywhere we are, whether we're in Pennsylvania, Kentucky, or the Cascade Mountains of Washington. And uh, we left uh, Nashville, Tennessee early this morning and flew into Denver, Colorado, and then into Seattle and had a blessed time with Brother Dennis there as he brought us from the airport to here. Counted that a privilege to get to know him. And I really can sense the prayers of you folks here. I know you have been praying, and I know there's folks back home praying for us, and we can sense the presence of God and the strength of those prayers. Our God is so wonderful, and there's nothing the heart of God throbs more to do than to just make you and I, His people, like Himself. He wants us to be like Him. And I trust this week that we all will become more like our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I was blessed with the singing this evening, and the just being here has been a blessing already to be received. And we want to look into God's Word tonight. I have the same Bible you do, so I really don't have anything new to tell you tonight. But God uses us all sometimes in different ways to manifest His will in our lives. And I just pray, God, you dear young people would... Give this week all you got. Give it your best. And let God work in your heart, and I think that's your desire. We want to talk about revival in our lives as disciples of the Lord Jesus tonight. And we're going to take thoughts from Luke chapter 15 and various other scriptures as well. Before we do that, let's bow our heads and look to God in a word of prayer. Shall we pray? Eternal Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Your Word is truth. Your Word is a life-giving fountain and a source of the knowledge of Yourself. And we thank You for that this evening. We thank You, Lord, for this opportunity to share Christ with each other in and around Your Word. Lord, I just pray for each student here in this Bible school this week. Give them the heart of Mary who sat at the feet of Jesus to hear those gracious words that proceedeth out of his mouth. Help them to forget the encumbering Martha world, Lord, that they left behind, and Lord, where they'll be going to serve next week. And in this time, just draw each one of us, old and young alike, staff and each one that's on these grounds, may the very presence of the Lord fill our hearts and make us to come to know you more in a meaningful way that we can be of service to you as your children. May your blessing rest upon this service. May you receive the preeminence. May Christ be exalted and lifted up. For he says, if I do, I will be, I will draw all men unto myself. And may God receive the glory in Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, first of all, we want to talk about what a New Testament disciple is. And look at a various uh, number of scriptures on that thought. We find that word not often in the Old Testament. It's a New Testament word. But tonight I want us each one to... Just think of ourselves as disciples of Jesus Christ. We are more than that. We also are sons and daughters of God. But the Scripture says when Jesus began His earthly ministry, He went along the shores and He called certain men to be His disciples. 
And we mostly think of those men in the Scriptures and a number of others after them in the book of Acts and farther on as the disciples of then. But they are gone. Their purpose of life has been fulfilled. And now our God has called you and I here. And we're in this little window, this little time, this little space that God has allotted to us. And it's our opportunity to be a disciple of Jesus Christ now. I talking to a young 19-year-old boy in the plane beside me today, and I asked if he ever considered serving the Lord. No, he says, I haven't. Well, I said, I want to give you an invitation to do that. So while you're young, 19 years of age, give Christ your life. That was a new thought to him. He said, he never thought about that. Well, I said, I want you to think about that. I told him I was 17 when the Lord saved me and transformed me from darkness to light. I said, he can do the very same thing for you. I said, don't you forget that. Okay, maybe the seed sown there will one day spring up into everlasting life. First thing I'd like to look about, uh, think about as a disciple is, a disciple, a New Testament disciple, is one that's born a disciple. You need to be born of God, first of all. We can put people through all sorts of, of uh, uh, rehabilitation, and I'm not saying none of that doesn't help, it is never necessary and good, but... Brothers and sisters, we can't change the heart of a man, of a lady, until they are born of God. They must be born from above. I was a church member when I was young in life. I become part of our group uh, when I was 12 years old, baptized. But you know, I lacked something. Not until I was 17 did the Lord make a difference in my life. When I knew for the first time my sins were washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ and He sent His Spirit into my heart. What a difference. Indeed, we can't make disciples be born by just allowing them to be church members. The water won't do it. I'm not saying that's not part of it. But brothers and sisters, we can baptize you three, four, five times until someone is born from above. They're still not a born disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said to Nicodemus, except the man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Another place he said he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So until a man is born again, he's outside the kingdom of God. He might be with the people of God. He might know a lot about God. He might know a lot about the Word of God. But until he's born of God, he's still on the outside of God's kingdom. And God's will is for New Testament disciples that they're on the inside. Because we're not a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ until we're inside the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus was told by Christ, that's the only way you can get in. Nicodemus didn't understand this. He was a ruler of Israel, but he couldn't figure out what Jesus was talking about. So he referred to his natural birth. He says, how can I be born with a mold? Jesus went on to say, he that is born of the water is the spirit. He said, it's not a fleshly birth, it's a spiritual birth. So we must be born again. And to be born again, what needs to take place? What really does then need to take place? If rehabilitation don't do it, if church membership don't do it, if water baptism don't do it, what does it take to be born again? You know, when I was a sinner, when I knew I was lost, like I said, I was in the church, I knew I needed to live different than I really was living. So I tried to reform myself. I tried to stop doing some things that I knew I should not have been doing. 
And I was successful at some things, but I couldn't change my heart from the inside out. That was my problem. I just couldn't do it. I tried to stop doing this or start doing that. I knew, knew that I needed to read my Bible more. And I needed to be more sincere in my, my walk with the Lord. But there was something drastically missing inside, just like that rich young ruler who Jesus said to him, keep the law. He says, I did, but it's what well like I yet. There still was something lacking in my experience. I needed to be born again. That's all I needed. A good dose of salvation will fix any cure you have. Any ill. It doesn't matter what your habits are. It doesn't matter if you have sins like your father and mother. You have inherited sins. The blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse it all and take care of the whole thing. It will do it. Praise God for that. The first thing I believe that has to happen, a man or a woman has to feel the conviction of sin. That's why more people don't live different lives. They aren't convicted about their sins. I preached last night in Kentucky. I believe if we could convince the unbelieving world where they are going and the, the awfulness of the pit and of hell and that it's forever and forever and they're going to burn there forever and they're never going to get out of that place, if we could just convince them in a rational way where they're going, every one of them would run to Jesus Christ without a moment's hesitation. But do you know why they don't? Well, there's a number of reasons why they don't. One of the reasons is, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Scripture says, The God of this world has blinded the eyes of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel should shine into them. Their eyes are blinded from the truth and the reality of where they are going. They're deceived. They don't believe it. They don't sense conviction of sin. Jesus said, when was that? It was when Matthew was converted, Levite, the writer of Matthew, he was also called Levi. He was a publican. Now, publicans weren't very nice fellows. They weren't very appreciated by their countrymen in the Bible days. And one of the reasons was they were hired by the Romans to collect money from their Jewish people and give it to the Romans. And therefore, they were looked at as betrayers in that sense. And they weren't appreciated. In addition to that, they had a notorious reputation for being dishonest collecting more money than they really should, and they were looked at with suspicion, and if you really wanted to call a fellow a nasty name, you called him a publican and a sinner. Well, that's who Levi was, and Jesus chose a publican like him to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it really doesn't matter how bad we are. It doesn't matter, and, and it's very true, I believe that was true of them, because Zacchaeus was also one of them. Remember the little fellow that climbed the sycamore or the tree to see the Lord? I believe when he, Jesus, he come down on that tree and Jesus says, Salvation has come to thy house. What did he say? Did he tell Zacchaeus what he told the rich young ruler? Go and sell all that thou hast. Give it to the poor. Take up your cross and follow me. And thou shalt have treasures in heaven. No, Jesus didn't say that to Zacchaeus. Why not? Is it because he wasn't rich? I think he was. Jesus saw from that man's testimony... Zacchaeus said, anything I've taken by false accusation from any man, I'll restore it for full damn. Jesus knew salvation had reached the depth of his heart. And he also knew the other young man, it had not. And even says in Mark's gospel, he looked at that young man, it says he beheld him, and he loved him. The Son of God, standing in front of you, he loves you. But when he told him what to do, Boom, down went his head, and he walked away. 
And Jesus left him go. He went after him and said, hey, wait a minute, you come back here. We need to, we need to work this thing out, young man. Tell you what, you come along to our Bible school and we'll get you converted. Okay? Or we'll send you to a, a course of some sort. And besides, we can really use your funds and our mission funds to low right now. Oh, these churches really have large funds, you know. A brother told me in Texas, he visited a Baptist church in Dallas, and they took an offering that morning while he was there. He never been to that church, just wanted to go see what kind of church this was, and it was the high up ends of Dallas, Texas. And they announced that morning that the building fund, or the maintenance fund was a bit low before they had the offering. He got a newspaper the next day, and it was $1.2 million they're offering that morning. Building fund was just a little low. So Jesus could have told this man, now, now we need your money. You, you come back here. But listen, young people, if Jesus don't have all of your heart, he don't want any of your heart. And he left him go, even though he loved him. He left him walk out the door of the church and take his own road. Now I trust, he did come to Jesus later. And some historians think it was Barnabas when he came and laid his money down at the feet of the apostles there in the book of Acts. And I trust it was. Well, like I yet. A man before he is born again must see himself a sinner. Back to Matthew's story. After Matthew was converted and he was a disciple of Jesus Christ, what did he do? I'm going to keep it a secret. And I'm not going to tell nobody about it. Is that what Matthew did? It's like the one young man got converted. He went to work the next day, and he came home, and his father said, Well, how'd it go at work today? He said, Went real good. Nobody knew nothing about it. Brothers and sisters, when Matthew was converted, he made a supper. He had a party. He called all his public and sinners, and I tell you, they were a bunch of good-for-nothing fellows. Basically, that's what they were. He called all these guys in there. Zacchaeus was the head... It says he's one of the, the top fellows there, chief publican, he was. So he probably sit up the end of the table, maybe Matthew at the other, and he wanted to introduce them to Jesus Christ. And I often wonder if that isn't where Zacchaeus had to desire him to see the Lord Jesus again and climb that tree to see him. I really believe Zacchaeus, somewhere along the road or the line, heard Jesus speak. Maybe he heard Jesus along the way say, All ye that labor and are heavy laden, come unto me, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn me from meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your soul. I don't know where he, where he got that desire, but he wanted to see the Lord Jesus. And that's what you want to do this week? Yeah. Amen. We want to see the Lord Jesus Christ. Even if we have to climb a tree to do it. <laughs> yes, he did. He sure did. Well, anyhow... It says the scribes and the Pharisees murmured at Matthew and at the disciples of the Lord. I don't think they were in the building. Maybe they were outside peering in the windows. It says they murmured and they asked the disciples of Jesus, Why does your master eat with publicans and sinners? Don't he know what kind of people they are? Don't he realize what it's going to do to his reputation? Doesn't he understand these people are the, the worst of all sorts in our community? Why does your Lord eat with them? Jesus heard it, and what did he say? Well, Jesus made a common statement that we all understand. He says, they that are whole need not a physician. But he says, they that are sick. And we all understand that. We don't go to the doctor, do we, when we're feeling all right? At least I don't. I don't even like to go when I am sick. But, but normally we don't go unless it be for a physical or a checkup or something like that. That's a, that's a statement we all understand. Those that are whole, they don't need a physician, but those that are sick. 
Then what did he say next? Then the Son of God made this statement. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What does that mean? Does it mean this? Does it mean that some people are naturally righteous, born righteous, and don't need Jesus? No. What does it mean then? Didn't Jesus come for everyone? Amen. Paul writes, Peter writes in his epistle, it's God's will that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's why God's long-suffering. What Jesus simply meant was this. As long as a man feels he's okay, he'll never be saved. Until a person feels the conviction for his sins and sees his wickedness, his sinfulness, his debauchery, sees it's my sins that now the Lord to the cross, until we can feel the weight and the shame and the conviction of those sins, we have not yet been born again. When a person hears the preaching of the Word of God, he believes it. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, it says. And when we feel conviction of sin, then is when we feel sorry for sin. And before a person is born again, he needs to repent, the Bible says. If we have never repented of our sins, we're not New Testament disciples. I believe I'm talking to people that have repented. I'm not insinuating you haven't repented or have not been born again. But I think it's good for us to rehearse the matters of what God's requirements is. It enables us better to tell those who need it. Indeed it does. Repentance is preached all through God's Word. John the Baptist preached repent. Jesus preached repent. Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost. He preached repent. Acts 3.19 Repent and be converted that your sins be blotted out. Paul preached repentance. He told at one time, God winked at this kind of illness, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Our forefathers preached repentance, and we need to preach repentance. What is repentance? Repentance, number one, is first realizing I'm lost. You know, you, you can't know you're, you, you can't be found until you know you're lost. Do you want to think about that? When I was converted, I'm going to give you some of my personal experiences this week. If you don't mind that. When I was converted, I knew I was lost. Like I said, I was in the church. I would hear the old preachers preach. They'd preach on judgment. They'd preach on eternity. They'd preach on death. And I was very uncomfortable with those messages. They didn't make me feel good at all. I knew if I went out of that church and I was killed in an automobile accident, I knew right where I would go. I had no peace with God. There were sins in my life. And I was convicted of my sins. I was. And when I began to seek the Lord, I wanted to know when I was saved. I knew I was lost and I wanted to know when I was saved. And it took me three days to actually get a hold of faith and understand God's plan of salvation for my own life. And they were a miserable three days. It was hot in July and I worked in a feed mill where we handled 100-pound feed bags and it felt like they weighed 200 pounds in those three days. But I kept seeking God and seeking God and seeking after Him. I said, Lord, I know I'm lost. I want to know when I'm saved. You know when you're sick, don't you? You know when you get better, right? Sure you do. And the Lord answered my prayer. And when we come to Jesus Christ, we need to understand we are lost. We need to feel the weight and the grief of our sins. You know, God is not some God way out beyond Cascade Mountains, beyond the blue, like we sing in that one song. God is right here. 
God feels with you and I. In Noah's day, chapter 6 of the book of Genesis, it says, God looked down on earth and he saw the wickedness of man and he saw that the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then it's the next verse say, And it repented God that he had made man on earth. And what does it say it did? It grieved him in his heart. God weeps when we sin. God is grieved when we disobey him. We were not created to be sinners. We were created to be souls to glorify God with a purpose and a design that he has created us for. So repentance carries sorrow for sin. When Jesus turned and looked at Peter when the cock crew, what did Peter do? Sorry, Lord! I'm sorry. Is that what Peter did? It says Peter went out and he wept bitterly. He was sad. Peter realized the weight of his sin. He realized what he'd done to his Lord. He realized he flubbed it up. He messed up. Oh Lord, I've, I've, I've goofed. Will you forgive me, Lord? Peter wrestled with God through the bitter sorrow of repentance for his sins. The next thing repentance includes is an acknowledgement of our sins. Number one, true repentance is godly sorrow for sin. And there's other scriptures we could turn to, but for the sake of time we won't. Number two, repentance is acknowledgement of my sin. Just like Zacchaeus, he truly repented. Repentance, if you look it up in the Bible dictionaries, in the regular dictionary, it'll say a change of mind. Well, it is that too. But if that change of mind never gets activated in your will to make deliberate steps like the young man down in the faraway country who had spent and wasted his living with riotous living, if he'd have stayed down there and said, I repent, Lord, I'm sorry, I'm, I repent, he'd have never been received into the Father's house. It needs to get us up and get us moving right back the same road we wandered from God. It's the same way we will find our God. And he acknowledged his sin. What did he say to his father? Father, I have sinned. My father used to tell me he thinks that's the hardest three words there is to say in the English language. I have sinned. I have sinned. That's acknowledging my sin. I will acknowledge my transgressions, the psalmist says in Psalms chapter 38. I will be sorry for my sin. There he, he, there's a verse that, that talks both about the sorrow for godly sin and repentance and also the acknowledgement of sin. Often said of God, when he went down the cool of the day, looked for Adam and Eve, and they had sinned, they hid themselves. And God called and said, Adam, where you at? It should have been the other way around. It should have been Adam running through the garden saying, God, where are you at? I have sinned. But don't work that way. Normally, it normally does it with human nature. No, it doesn't. And when God did finally meet up with him and he talked to him, he says, Adam, what'd you do? Did you eat of that tree? Yes, Lord, I have sinned. Is that what Adam said? No, her. She's the one. The woman he called her. Of all things, he says, the woman thou gavest me, she gave me the fruit. And then God turned to the woman and said, Eve, what'd you do? I sinned, Lord, I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? Is that what Eve did? No, the serpent. 
That's just how we are. Human nature wants to pass our sin and the guilt and the shame and the blame on someone else. But true repentance is owning our own sins that we've done. Not try and squirm out of them. Not say this is inherited sin and my father was this way and his father was that way and I just have to live with this the rest of my life. Or try and say it's not my fault I got myself into this dilemma and sometimes it isn't. Sometimes we are victim of circumstances. But brothers and sisters, when we are involved with sin before our holy God, we do well to acknowledge that sin and true repentance will do that. You know, there was a time in my life I was a naughty fellow. I grew up in a Christian home, but us fellows went on Halloween one night, and we did something we shouldn't have done. We destroyed something of a man's. That's how you did in those days. Yeah, I went around Halloween if you're unconverted. Thank you for water. <clears throat> and uh, I felt pretty bad about it. There were some other fellows with us, and I could have said, well, they were the ones that instigated it, and they did, I didn't, but I still helped. But I really felt bad about it. And, and to make matters worse, this man had a brother who came into the feed mill where I worked. And he was, he was really a nice man. We talked a lot. And one day I had enough courage to tell him what I did. Oh, he said, you're in bad shape, David. He said, if that man ever finds out you did that, you've had it. That's what he told me. He said, my cow's gotten hit. Now, he's my brother. He said, my cow's got in his orchards one night and just ate a few apples off the tree, not many. And he actually took me to court and sued me. So he's a rotten egg. I'm going to tell you, if he ever catches up to you, he'll sit you in jail. So I knew when I was a sinner, that was one of the first places when I got converted I had to go. And it was. And I drove an old 57 Chevy in them days, two-door hardtop. Monday night after work, I get in my old 57 Chevy, and I start on the road to restitution. I was repentant. I was sorry. I was a basket case. I'm telling you, I was. And I knew I had to have, uh, go see this man. I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know if I'd ever make it back or not. Well, I drove that old 57 Chevy into his, his uh, driveway, and it was a summer evening, and him and his wife, sure enough, were sitting right out in the front yard reading the newspaper. So I slowly climb out of my car, and I sort of wobble over to this picket fence. He had a picket fence there, and I said, are you the owners of the place here? Yep. I said, sir, I just want you to know I'm getting converted. I said, do you remember a couple of years ago what happened down here in your building? I sure do. I could see it. I could see it starting to really. I said, well, I just want you to know I'm the one that did it. What'd you do that for? He snapped back at me. I said, I don't know why I did it, but I said, I want you to know I'm here to pay you for everything we've done. I said, I want to pay you. I said, I want peace with God and I want peace with you. I said, would you please forgive me and take payments? And you know, a miracle took place that night. That man, he was holding that newspaper up like this. After all, that paper started to shake and great tears started rolling down his cheeks. He could hardly control himself. He looked up at me and he says, Son, you're forgiven. You're only a cent. I tell you what, I pulled in a 57, but I thought I was leaving in a 757. <laughs> I about flew out of that place. Oh, what a burden of sin! 
was taken care of. Now, you know what I think was going on inside that man? What do you think was going on inside of him? I don't think it was anything about me. That man... <coughs> excuse me. I brought this car from Pennsylvania. I tried hard to live in Pennsylvania. But I couldn't do it. My wife was giving me garlic and vitamins and all kinds of things to get over this cough. And don't you know, I carried it to Kentucky and I coughed all through that week last night, or last week preaching. And I thought maybe I could leave it in Kentucky. But I didn't. I still have that little tickling cough there. I think what was going on in that man's mind was he saw someone doing something he knew he never done. I think the Holy Ghost flashed pictures back in his memory of scenes and places and happenings and debts and wrongdoings in his own life that he knew he never took care of. And he felt guilty before God, even though it was just a frail little old 17-year-old boy shaking like a leaf there, leaning against that picket fence that night. It was God, that's who it was. My next trip was to an Amish bishop, and on and on and on I had to go. I needed to go. I needed to get it. I needed to own up to my sins. Repentance involves owning up to our sins. And I know there's a lot of books out there, and there's a lot of writings. Uh, you can't help it, and you need to get someone else who was involved, and you need to let them experience this and go through all sorts of things. I'm here to say tonight, if a humble soul acknowledges his needs and his sins before a holy God, the Lord Jesus Christ will cleanse him from all unrighteousness. All. The word all. Not some or most. And the others you're going to have to work your way through. Tough luck. No. He says he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Praise God for that. A New Testament disciple is one that's born again that has first repented. That's what gives us new life. Number three, we must confess our sins. And that's part of owning up to them. You don't have to confess them to me, but you must confess them to God. And you must confess them to the people that you have sinned against too. Get them out. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And then the verse I just quoted, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess, it's conditional by that little word if. If we are willing to confess our sins in faith believing to the Lord Jesus Christ, He will forgive us our sins. And fourthly, true repentance is a forsaking from the heart all known sin. Forsaking from the heart all known sin. I believe that rich young ruler had a noble desire to serve God. And I believe he went part way. And maybe some people go Go this far. Maybe they have a sense of guilt. Maybe they want to live for God somehow, some way in their plans. And they come to God and they start on this journey. And they're even maybe willing to confess some things and forsake them. But when it comes down to every last sin, like that darling sin of our heart that we cherish the most, and we say no. Lord, I'll let you cleanse my life. You can come down into my house. You can go into every room of my house. You can go to the kitchen and the living room and the attic and the basement. But there's one closet I won't let you in, Lord. I want to tell you, he's through with you right there. If we are not willing from the heart to forsake and turn our back on sin and quit the sin business and stop the sin business, the, Mary, the angel told Mary when she was to have Jesus, she says, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people... In their sins? From their sins. Jesus delivers from sin. A lot of people get 
saved, so they say. I'm not doubting or, or judging that they aren't saved, but they keep right on living like they always did. No! The new birth is a transformation, brothers and sisters, and it changes. The proverb writer says, He that covers his sins shall not prosper. And that's what we try to do. Try to cover them up. Isn't that what Adam and Eve did? Sure they did. They knew they were naked all of a sudden. Didn't know that before. And they took these leaves off and... We better cover ourselves up. We better cover Did David, the man of God, try and cover his sin? He sure did. Did it work? Does it ever work? Be sure your sin will find you out, the Scripture says. It'll find you. We cannot cover it. We cannot hide it. We must confess it, acknowledge it, and forsake it. And then, when we have done that, in serious, earnest, sincere repentance before God, we believe by faith the shed blood of Jesus Christ atones for my sins. We are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. When we repent of our sins and are born again, we are forgiven. We are cleansed. We are transformed. We are regenerated. Those are all New Testament phraseologies that talk about a new life in Christ Jesus. There is transforming power in the gospel of Jesus Christ to change us from darkness to light. And if it doesn't change us, we need to make sure we are a disciple that's been born again. We're forgiven. We're adopted as sons and daughters into God's glorious family bought by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he's what? A little bit different. He's a holy, totally new man. He is a new creature. Behold, it says, right in the middle of that verse, all things pass away and behold, that's what it says, it. behold, all things become new. Praise God for that transformation. Paul says also in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth within me in the life that I now live. I live by the faith of the Son of God. Now let's just look at some aspects or marks of New Testament disciples. The next one I'd like to think about, first of all, he needs to be born of God. Maybe we spend too much time in that subject. Now I'm not long, I'm not used to preaching this long. Normally, I, I tell you, I'll just tell you what here, when I went in here and talked to Brother Joe tonight, and so I said, how long should I preach? I didn't know what your schedule is here, or, or how long. Uh, he, he told me something a little bit different. It took me back just a little bit. You know why? Because I'm not used to being told you can preach an hour and a half if you want to. Hey, that's, that's almost strange doctrine. <laughs> it is. Most places, now, now, now try and keep it in 45 minutes, I tell you. Or, or if you have to go with an hour. But you know, I, I, I have a hard time keeping it within that, in those kind of settings. So maybe I have a hard time reaching the, reaching the time here this evening. It's quite different from what I'm used to. Really, it is. I often say I'm not good at a lot of things. And another thing I'm not good at is condensing messages. Condensing the Word of God is difficult to do. And I know we can't say it all one time. The next thing is, Jesus went for the, uh, the shores of Galilee, and he called the disciples, and what did he say to them? Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And, and uh, we're not going to look at the fishers of men part. You will do that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, because that's why he called you. But a New Testament disciple is one that's a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just like us all to ask ourselves a question. Am I truly following Jesus? Or, who am I following? Peter and the disciples followed afar off. 
when they took Jesus out of the garden. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. New Testament discipleship is to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'd like to just contrast this with belief. It's one thing to be a believer in Jesus Christ. It's another thing to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I believe a lot of people believe in Jesus Christ. Recently I sold a truck to a man and he couldn't talk English. He was a Spanish-speaking man. I often wish I could talk Spanish so I could preach in Spanish. And people tell me I ought to learn to do that. I tell them I'm still learning English. <laughs> Got to get that one taken care of first. And this man couldn't talk. And uh, he had an interpreter with him, which I thought was a man. But later she says, no, I'm not a man. I'm a woman. She said, I know I look like one, but I'm not. Oh, I'm sorry. I said, I didn't know that. And uh, we made this deal for the truck. And I didn't know this fellow too good. But he gave me a hundred dollars down, didn't need no receipt, just shook my hand and said, I'll be back tomorrow. I figured, well, I didn't lose nothing. Now, I didn't get in the truck yet, so we had to go to the notary and get the thing signed over. But um, he wanted to drive this truck first, so we were out driving around this truck, and uh, the, the, it was actually his niece, is who the interpreter was, was sitting in the back seat, and I was sitting in the front seat. So we were talking back and forth, and... And uh, I got talking to them about the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I said, is your uncle, is he a Christian? She didn't know what I said. I said, well, you ask him in Spanish. I said, is he a Christian? So she rattled something to him. And then she came back to him and said, no, he's not. So my next question was then, well, what then does he worship? So she rattled something to him. And I seen him get this blank look on his head or his face. What do I worship? You know, that's a good, that's a valid question. If someone's not a Christian, what then do they worship? Who is worshiping? Well, I said, she, she, she went like this. And then he rattled something else to her and she said, he says he believes in God. That's what he said he believes. And that's just where a lot of people are, my friends. They believe in God, but they don't follow God. To follow the Lord Jesus Christ is to move one foot in front of the other and you go where Jesus goes. And you don't go where He doesn't go. And you walk where He walks. And when people see you, they see Christ. Because you're walking with Christ. Because you're a follower of Him. You're walking with God like He's not dead. And one day He's going to take you. Like He took Him. Yes, He will. So it's much more, my friend, to be a follower of Jesus Christ and a believer. Scripture tells us the devils also believe and tremble, but they don't follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this word disciple, I'd like to think about it a little bit here before we go to the next point. <coughs> the word, New Testament word disciple is derived from the word pupil. That's what it means. It's a pupil who went to learn from the Jewish rabbis. And the word means a learner. That's what it means, a learner. And these boys would leave their homes and they would go and they'd live with the rabbi who would teach them in hopes of one day they would be a rabbi. That's where Jesus borrows his word disciple from. That's where the New Testament gets its word, from these Jewish rabbi boys who were students or pupils in the senior rabbi's house. Well, they weren't rabbi boys yet. They were Jewish boys. Not only did they supposed to learn what he taught them, but they were to become like him in character and nature. 
That's what he expected them to be. Not just to learn what he had to say and believe that, but they had to become like him. In other words, this boy had to give up his home for the rabbi's home. This boy had to give up his identity for the rabbi's identity. We need to give up our identity for the identity of Jesus Christ. We're going to get a little bit more on that later. That's what New Testament means. To become like our Master. That's what the word disciple means. The next thing is taught over here in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. There is a verse I want to read, verse 23. <coughs> and he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. New Testament, discipleship, you need to be born into it. You need to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And you need to be willing, and I think this happens at conversion, and sometimes it might happen later, because he says daily, it's an occurrence, it's a choice, I should say, that needs to happen always in our life. We need to deny ourselves. What does that mean? That means to disown ourselves. Sell out to me. That means to, to let die my selfish, ruling principle of self-will in my heart. That wants my will, that wants my way, my pride, my ego, everything about me must be denied and disowned for the sake of Jesus Christ. Now, I tell you, that's quite a qualification for New Testament disciples. Have I died out to all of me? Or is there still some of me in there yet? Do I still want a little bit of my will? Just a little bit. You know, there was a young man. He was courting. And he had two girlfriends. And that's not good, is it? Well, he had two girls that he, that he didn't know which one he was, the Lord would have him marry. And he thought, well, hmm. Lord, I, I really like this one, but I, I like that one too. What am I going to do? I know what I'm going to do. He said, Lord, I'm going to let you choose for me. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take my horse and carriage. I'm going to go down to the road and that wind the road. The one girl lived one way and the other girl lived the other way. So he said, when I get there, whichever way the horse goes, I'm going to know that's your confirmation that that's the one I'm to marry. So that's what he did. But do you know what he did? When he got there to the, the Y in the road, he tugged on the ring just a little bit. <laughs> Not much. Just a little bit of that one ring. So you say, he did have a little bit of say in the matter, didn't he? And sometimes we do too. Sometimes we say, yep, Lord, I'm going to leave it all to you. But we pull in the ring just a little bit sometimes. Just so that horse maybe feels a little bit of a, a tug there that we're going to go in this way rather than the other way. Let's don't pull in the rain. Let's sell out to Jesus Christ. The second thing here besides denying ourselves is we must take up our cross daily and follow me, which we've already had that word already. What does it mean to take up my cross daily? Does it mean two pieces of wood nailed at perpendicular angles that I carry around on my shoulder? Is that taking up my cross? Is it the cross on top of some church building steeple? Is that what it means to take up the cross of Jesus? Is it one on the, the, the zipper of my Bible? Is that what it means? Can I put one on there? And that's taking the cross of Jesus? Or some people put a gold cross around their neck on a chain. Is that taking up the cross of Jesus? No. What does taking up the cross of Jesus mean? 
Well, it's interesting to note that the word cross in the New Testament only ever always means one thing. Sometimes different words, or sometimes words in our English text can mean different than others. One example is the word conversation. When the Bible uses the word conversation, most cases in the New Testament, it doesn't mean our speech. That's what we would think conversation means. You're talking. It includes that, but it means all of our behavior, our conduct, our deportment. That's what that word means. But there are some places it does mean our speech. Well, the cross is not like that. The cross only ever has one definition. The cross is only ever made for one thing, and that was death. That's what the cross stands for, death to the self-life. Not only denying it, but letting it die daily. I must let it die. I must not identify with myself, but now I identify unashamedly with Jesus Christ. That's the cross. To live for Him, to believe in Him, to worship Him, to identify with Him, to suffer with Him, and even to die with Jesus Christ. That's what the cross means. Jesus says over in Luke chapter 14, same words almost, but He says this, verse 27, Whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It's a positive statement. He didn't say if you don't bear your cross, you can be a disciple. You just won't be a real good one. You might have some tough spots or maybe it'll work out and maybe it won't. No, it's point blank. It's a positive statement by our gracious Lord. He said if you don't bear your cross, you're not my disciple. You might be a believer of me like a lot of people say they are. They might know who I am. They might have had mothers that prayed for them and parents. and Maybe they taught them scriptures even and that's good. But that alone in itself will not do it, will it? Until I allow Jesus Christ to slay that old man within me and become dead to that man and alive unto Jesus Christ. Unashamedly in this world. Jesus says in Mark chapter 8 verse 38. He says, For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and my words in this what? I tell you what, when you look at these airports today and the society we're living in and all the corruption and the ungodliness that we're living in, we're living in the same kind of a day, he says, whosoever shall be ashamed of me and this adulterous and sinful generation of him shall the Son of Man be when he comes with, his, with the angels and the glory of his Father. We've got to be brave, brothers and sisters and young people, to take the Lord Jesus Christ, to take his word, to take his ways, and to take his cross not be ashamed of him. It's very hard to do sometimes. I guess real difficult sometimes, depending on who you're talking about. It gets tough. Another thing that enters in here, and this is a tough one too, verse 26. We're in Luke 14. This is part of the cross. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and his wife and children and his brother and his sister, yea, his own life also, he also, it says, cannot be my disciple. Second time he says that. Now, does that mean he wants you to go home to your parents and you're finished and say, I hate you, Dad? Mom? No. That's all he's talking about. He needs to be number one. Next to your parents, next to your husband, your son, your daughter, any other objects of love you have in your life, he must be number one. And if he is not number one, he's not there. If he's not Lord of everything, as often is said, he's not Lord of anything. He must be number one. Your love and devotion to Jesus Christ is not hinged or contingent upon your relationship with your parents, your husband, your wife. I'm not saying a lot of that doesn't enter in. 
We can worship the Lord together. Indeed, we can. We can be a benefit to each other. But when it comes to first things first, Jesus says, that must be me. That's part of the cross of Jesus Christ. He caught that in his precious word to us. Next thing we want to look at about disciples of Jesus Christ is <coughs> that's the allegiance of Jesus Christ. That's what that is there. When it comes to our allegiance, He must be first. Jesus Christ is first for us. The disciple of Jesus Christ must be feeding on the Word of God. First Peter chapter 2 says, verse 2, as newborn babes... Someone finish it, one of your students. That she may grow thereby. Thank you. You got that? Sounds like you got it pretty good. Keep it. Keep it. I tell young people... I shook hands with a lot of young people uh, at the church store last week, and I would tell a lot of them young boys and girls, I said, I see you're carrying a Bible. I said, hang on to it. That'll get you home. Your Bible will get you where you need to go. You know, we can... They say if you teach an Indian how to fish, you can feed himself. You don't need to feed him anymore. And it's so true. If we can teach our spiritual souls to feed on the Word of God, it'll take care of a lot of those other hungers that we think we have sometimes. We need to pray continually, Lord, open thou mine eyes, as the psalmist prayed, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. For the entrance of thy word giveth light, and thy word is a light to my path, and a lamp unto my path, or unto my feet, and a lamp unto my pathway. Let's turn to a scripture that emphasizes this so clearly. Teaches this, I should say. It's John chapter 8. St. John chapter 8. <coughs> I want to read verse 31 through 36. This tremendous truth here. Then said Jesus to them Jews, those Jews, which believed on him. See, they were believers, but Jesus had more than that for them. He said this. You with me? John eight thirty one. If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. That's the mark of a New Testament disciple, he says. If you continue in the word of God, then he says, ye are my disciples indeed. I'd like to ask you a question, young people. What is a disciple indeed? Is there a difference between a disciple and a disciple indeed? What do you think? Well, you know how we can get answers to those kind of things? Go to other places in the Scripture where, where, where the word indeed is used. And I think if we think a little bit, we all could think of one. Paul uses in the book of Timothy, talking about widows. He says, some widows are widows, but some are widows indeed. Now, is there a difference between widows and widows indeed? Yes, there is. A widow indeed, a disciple indeed, is a genuine disciple. Not just a disciple. He is a... That word means to us the same as the words of Jesus. Uh, verily, verily, or certainly. 
He is a disciple. He is a genuine disciple who is one that stays in the Word of God. Feed your souls in the Word of God, beloved young people. You need to do it. When I was converted, you know, I knew the Bible all my life. I knew it well. We had family devotions in my home when I was a little boy. I went to church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, and every Wednesday evening. I had the Word of God put into me. In 1961, our parents in Cumberland County, Pennsylvania, along with some Mennonite people, started the first Christian day school in that community in 1961. In fact, I have a picture of that group in my briefcase because one of the people that was in that school was in this church in Franklin, Kentucky, and I hadn't seen him but one or two times in 50 years, and I wanted to show him what he looked like when he was nine years old. He's now 62. Or right around there, maybe three, I don't know. Then we moved to Lebanon County and we went to Mennonite schools and they drilled Bible memory into me. Bible memory. And I was able to memorize it. I had a lot better memory then than I do now. Hear that, young people? Don't forget that. Your memory is keen at reserving God's Word in your heart. And why do you need to memorize Scripture? I was preaching one time to a young group of young people and a young man come up to me after church. He reminded me of the rich young ruler for all the world. He seemed so sincere. He seemed like he really had a desire for the Lord. And I believe he did. But he said, why is it? He said, I can live victorious, but he said, there's a certain sin in my life. I come up against that thing. And he says, I fail almost every time. What can I do, he said. And he said, I feel so bad. And I repent of it. And I try and get victory over it. And says, sometimes I do, but it just... Time and time again, I can't give victory over it. What would you get told, though, young fella? And he, too, I knew was grew up in a Christian home. He wasn't some fella that didn't know the Word of God off the streets of Seattle. No, I knew he knew God's Word. This is what I told him. I hear what the Bible says back there in Psalms 119, Thy word have I hid in my heart, and then I had him finish it. I said, and what's the rest of that verse say? That I might not sin against thee. And that's why you need God's Word in your heart. Because if you don't have God's Word in your heart, if I don't have God's Word in my heart, when it comes to... When do we sin, anyhow? When do we sin? When the devil tempts us, right? Absolutely. When, we, when the pressure's on. Maybe no one else is around, but the devil is there. Satan is there to tempt our souls, just like he tried to tempt Jesus. And what did Jesus do every time the devil tempted him? It is written. It is written. It is written all three times. But you know, if we don't know what's written, we won't know what to tell the devil. That's why you need to hide God's Word in your heart, and particularly those Scriptures that deal with your weak spots. Those areas where you know that Satan is apt to tempt you the, the, the most, you find Scriptures. If it's pure thought, then get those verses and write them down and quote them to Satan and tell him, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure heart, for they shall see God. Which also means the same as, if you're not pure heart, you won't see God. Right? Sure. We don't maybe think of it like that all the time, but that's the truth of the matter. If it's the pure heart that will see God, then the impure will not see Him. Maybe it's speeding. Any of you boys have any trouble with that? Probably not. Whatever it is, maybe it's stretching stories, or, or maybe it's just a little bit spiritual laziness. Just don't always want to have my devotions, and don't always want to 
read scriptures, memorize some scriptures, hide them in your heart. If you continue in the Word of God, you will be a genuine disciple indeed. Well, let's read the rest of this scripture here. We didn't get down through all of chapter 8 here to the uh, verse I wanted to finish with. John chapter 8. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. What does that mean? God's Word is truth, and if you bathe your souls in the light of that glorious, life-giving, eternal Word of God, it'll make you to know God. It'll make you to understand God. And you will receive the truth. God's Word is absolute truth. And we don't have to put, we don't have to defend God's word. We should defend it when we need to. But what I mean is, we don't need to prop God's word up, because God's word is truth, and it'll stand. Jesus says, "Though heaven and earth passes away, my word will never pass away." He says, "All flesh is as the glory of grass, and 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 it's going to pass away." But He says, "The word of the Lord shall abide forever, forever." God's word is final truth. It's absolute truth. It's truth that will enlighten your heart and lift you from the bondage of sin so you can have victory over that sin. Let's read on. And they answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou ye shall be made free? Listen carefully to verse 34. <coughs> Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And that is bondage. And that's what God's Word means when it says, the truth shall make you free. It will set you free from the servitude of sin and bondage and defeat and shame and everything that sin does to us. God's Word living inside of me gives me victory and freedom over that. Now look here, another verse. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the Son abideth ever. If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free. Indeed, thank you. Cut that. Someone's paying attention. There it is again. If the Son shall make you free, I mean, it's a free that's absolutely genuine freedom. And you need to do that. Let's turn now to James chapter 1. You know, I don't even see what time I got up here, so I feel rather innocent about that clock. Clocks are my enemies. James chapter 1. Verse 21 says this. Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word. The engrafted word means the same as our English word grafted, and you all understand what that means. You know, I always marveled how they can do that. They can take a fruit tree and they can cut an opening in that tree at a certain spot and they'll peel the bark back and then they'll take another little sprig that they want to graft into that tree and they'll put it down in that, inside that bark that they peel back and they'll stick it down in there real tight, maybe make a little opening for that sprig to go in there and then they wrap that thing real good with tree wrap and a marvelous thing takes place. That little sprig, which would die if you laid it out here in the concrete, it begins to grow. <laughs> Unless it doesn't catch, which sometimes I think maybe it might happen. But, but it begins to grow. It becomes cohesively attached, is the word I use, to that mother tree. And what happens? After a while, little buds start coming out on it. After a while, them buds turn to leaves. And after a while, blossoms come. And after a while, fruit comes. 
I'll never forget the first time I was in Jamaica. I was down behind my father's house. He lived there for a number of years, and we went to visit him the first time, 1971. Two, maybe. And uh, he had a caretaker of the property there, and this caretaker was an old Jamaican man. He said, I want to show you something. So he took me down to his... Uh, his uh, orchard there like he had there one time and he showed me one of the most beautiful trees I ever saw in my life and I'll never forget it as long as I live he showed me a tree I'm going to guess it was 15-20 feet wide and maybe 30 feet high and this tree had oranges lemons and grapefruit all in the same tree it was simply now they were all mature at the same time the lemons were still green and, and, and the oranges weren't turning quite yet but the grapefruit he was picking they were ready and he gave me one but that was, a, he says, I grafted the lemon tree in there, and I grafted the orange tree into that grapefruit tree. And he says, I get all three off of one tree. What a blessing. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. All three of them. That's great, isn't it? God always uses threes and sevens and twelves and forties and his numbers. And that's what happens here when it says, receive with meekness, heart bowed and surrender to Jesus Christ, and humility to him first. The engrafted word, that means let it become part of your inner man and let it grow there. That's where true biblical convictions is born. When God's word, he says, I'll put my word in your heart and I'm going to write them on your mind. Hebrews chapter 10. The word of God becomes cohesively attached to our inner man. Paul says, I delight after the law of God with the inner man. Yes, that's such a beautiful blessing. I believe the Holy Ghost just infuses truth and makes us free when the Word of God is inside our heart. He says then, Be ye doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving your own self. Now we need to be cautious about deception. There's a lot of deceivers in the world and the Bible tells us that deceivers shall wax worse and worse deceiving and being deceived in the last days. So we need to be careful. We know God's Word. That's another reason you can remain a disciple of Jesus indeed if you know the truth. And that's how you keep from being deceived. Not by analyzing what they tell you. My daughter worked in the bank and they taught her how to detect a, a fake dollar bill. How do you think they did it? That's right. They caused her and required her to steady the genuine one. Not the fake ones and the false ones because there's a lot of them and some of them vary a little bit. But when you know the genuine, then you'll be able to detect the false. But if you don't know the genuine, then you're at a loss. So we don't want to be deceived. This is another way of being deceiving. It's not only the people that come down the road with a false doctrine or a book under your, put a book under your eyes and say, hey, you need to read this. But we can deceive our own self. When we think we are followers of Jesus by hearing only the Word of God, says we deceive our own souls. What you dear young people do next week and the weeks beyond is the true test of the results of this Bible school. What you do. Now what you hear this week, that's important. You do, it needs to come through the year of faith. Absolutely. But how you put this into practical application in your lifestyles, how you live with your siblings and your parents and your work associates or school associates or whoever, whatever it might be, that's going to be where the real test is. And God bless you and give you courage to hide God's word in your heart to be victorious. For he says, if any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man beholding his natural face in a glass. It says he beholdeth himself 
and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. And that is a trick of our enemy, the devil. The Bible says in the parable of the sower, the first seed is that which is sown by the wayside. It says, and immediately the devil comes and takes that word out of their heart, and they never are saved. And if he can do that to you or to me, if we take a look in the mirror this week, we're looking in the mirror. Who are we looking at? We're looking at me. We're not on Facebook. We're facing the book. Okay? We're facing the book. And we're looking at me in here. We're looking at that dirt that I might have here. But you know what? I can't see that dirt if I'm not looking in the mirror anymore. If I go my way and forget all about that, I'll never know the dirt's there. And I think that's, that's what he's talking about here. Tremendous truth. But look at verse 25. Whoso looketh into what? The perfect law of liberty. If you know the truth, the truth shall what? Make you free. This is not bondage. This is liberty, young people. Glory to God. The perfect law of liberty. Hold it close. Cherish your Bible. Read it much. Delve into its eternal wealth of eternal and spiritual riches for your soul and your life. And you know what happens when you do that? It puts a foundation under you that prepares you for the rest of your life. That's what it'll do. This is true discipleship. Now let's turn there to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Verse 46 says, And why call ye me Lord, Lord, <coughs> and do not the things which I say? Same thought carried from the book of James. Here it's just hearing. There we were looking in the mirror. Here we hear, but he says in verse 47, Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will liken you to whom he is like. And now he gives us two examples. I call them Mr. Foolish Man and Mr. Wise Man. They both built a house. One built a house on the side of the street that was on even numbers. The other built a house on the street that was even numbered. Mr. Wise Man built his house on the street that was even numbers. He's number 48. That's him. Mr. Foolish Man, he lived on the other side of the street, number 49. Okay? Two men. Now, Jesus wants to conclude the Sermon on the Mount. Of all the teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, this is how he ends her up. This is, this, is a, this is the truth of the application of the Sermon on the Mount to our life. 48. He is like a man which built a house. Some of you are probably... Familiar with the building business? And what did he do? He dig deep. And he laid the foundation on a flood on a, on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat heavily upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. That's quite a house. He built his house right. Took a lot of effort. Took a lot of time. Took a lot of pain. Took a lot of work. Paul thought he was never getting done. Well, the other fellow built one too. Let's look at him. Mr. Foolish Man. He that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without foundation. Now, I'll tell you, that's just what we are. If we don't have God's Word, we're like a man without a foundation. If you young people don't have God's Word in your heart, you're like a young lady or a young man without a foundation. That was the description of the foolish man. 
Man without a foundation. Today we see lots of people in our world, our society today, lots of people without a foundation. Sad. It's sad when you look over humanity today. Lots of number 49ers, isn't there? Without a foundation, building a house upon the earth against which the stream to beat vehemently and the immunity it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Now let's suppose these two fellows both started their house at the same time. And this, this, this man, he took off over here, number 49, he was, he was for efficiency. He was fast. He just level a little spot like you do when you put a storage shed down and said, we're going to build a house. Just, just level around a little bit here and we're fine. This is good. This will, this will stand. This will work. The other man over here, he starts digging. And he starts digging. And he gets a shovel. And he gets a digging there. And he hits roots. And he hits shale. And he hits obstructions of all kinds. He hits that mucky clay. sticks to your shovel, you know. But he kept on a digging. In the olden days, it was tough to dig basements. They didn't have huge excavators with four-foot buckets that could take several tons of earth at one time and dig that hole out. He was digging. And the other man over there probably had his house on the roof. He was still down that hole over here yet. And maybe they laughed at him. And maybe they'll laugh at you. That's just okay. Let them laugh. And maybe he went over there and looked down in that hole and said, What are you doing? Oh, me? I'm building a house. Well, well so am I. Look, we got ours on the roof. We have me and you're building a house. You look to me like you're going mining to me down in that hole. So deep. Drinking his... Big slam, Mountain Dew. Tell you what, you poor old fellow, you. Laughed at him. Bunch of nonsense. Bunch of unessentials. You hear that word today sometimes? Yeah, unessentials. Listen, dear young people, if God's word teaches something, it's not an unessential. It's an essential. He that heareth and doeth, that little tweak right there is what made all the difference in these two houses. Well, what does it say he did? He digged deep. Now look carefully at the arrangement of the next several words. And he laid the foundation on a rock. It does not say the rock was the foundation. Alright? What was then the foundation? It says he laid the foundation on a rock. Paul says, I have laid the foundation, let every man take heed how he build thereon. The foundation was his faith and obedience to the Word of God, which is the rock. The Lord Jesus is the rock, and His eternal Word, that's the rock. And when we, by faith, obey that Word in our hearts, it places us on a foundation, young people, that will never be able to shake you and jar you loose from that rock, as long as you stay there. What do we sing that one hymn, that old hymn of the church? To he who and Jesus have leaned for repose, I'll never know, never desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never know, never, no, never forsake. How firm a foundation. Young people, 
A true disciple is one that's born again. He's one that follows the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed he is. He denies himself. He takes up his cross. And he, he, he intakes the word of God. And that word of God speaks truth into his heart. And he believes that truth and obeys that truth. And it puts him on a foundation that's able to take all the shakings and the thunderings and the storms and the vehement wind and the floods and the waters and all the false doctrine and the temptations and everything you're going to have to do in life. And I can't say what that might be, but God alone knows. I just want to give you a sure anchor of your soul. Get into the Word of God and anchor your souls right here. Land on the rock, Christ Jesus, our living Lord. What a powerful, powerful truth from God's eternal Word. Jesus also said in John 13, 35, you don't need to read that. You know what it is. Probably most of you could quote it. John 13, 35. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. Now, one of you ladies quote that rest of that verse for me. Thank you. They always are a little bit fast in the gun when you go over here. So I thought you'd give you an opportunity. By this shall all men know. This is what will make the difference. In the community you live, if you have love one for another, bow your hearts to the benevolence and the charity of the Lord Jesus Christ and ask Him to give you the pity, the care, and the concern, and the compassion for other people like He has. That's what makes the difference. And it says in Jude, what does it say there? And of some having compassion, what? Making a difference. Hating even the garments spotted by the flesh, and says, pulling them out of the fire. We need compassion. I need compassion. How can I sleep at night when so many people are going to hell? How can we see the world dying? How can we see the enemy coming in like a flood, threatening the church of the living God? Don't we have any compassion? You pray for me that I have compassion. And ask God to give you compassion. The last thing I want to look at tonight, there's more things we could, then I'm going to sit down. The Bible says in the book of Acts that the disciples were called something in Antioch. What was it? Christians. Now the question, why were they called Christians in Antioch? Let's turn there. Acts chapter 11. Let's just look at that scripture. Why were they called Christians? Acts chapter 11. Well, we probably ought to go back to Barnabas. In verse 26 is our verse. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. You're only going to be here a week. How'd you like to stay another 51? And have the Word of God again and again and Thoroughly, from cover to cover, taught the Word of God. I tell you what it did. It transformed them. It transformed them, people. They thought they were Christ Himself. They called Him. That's what the word Christian means. Christ-like. That's what it says to Peter and John. It says they saw their boldness. And it says they took knowledge of them that they had what? Been with Jesus. They knew they were disciples of Jesus because they acted like Him. 
There's a favorite verse for many people in the Bible. It's Romans 8.28 that says that uh, all things work together for good to them who are the called, to them who, uh, uh, I'm not sure how I got it quite right there, called according to his purpose. But verse 29 is a precious verse. I think that's more favorite to me. I want to just show you that verse there. Verse 29, Romans chapter 8. Speaking of being like Jesus, a disciple is one who imitates his Lord. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. Don't be afraid of those words. They're Bible words. And look what they mean. He says he predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son. God, before the world begun, designed and willed by God. We are willed by God to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Bear His image, young people. Be a Christian. A true disciple is Christ-like. A true disciple acts like Christ. He's conformed not to the world. That's also in Romans, isn't it? Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. So you have some choices here. You can be conformed to the world. You'll probably be conformed to the world more on Facebook, but you'll be more conformed to Jesus Christ by faith in the book. Yeah. Conformed to the image of His Son. I just want to let that with you tonight. It says in Peter that we might be partakers of His divine nature. True disciple is one who's like His Lord in all these ways. Before we close, I'd just like to open it up this evening to you if you have something you'd like to say. Maybe a need in your own life. Maybe a testimony in your life. Maybe a confession. Then I'm going to turn the time over to our brother. Any one of you, dear students, before we close, is there anything you want to say? Give me that opportunity. I know you all have lots of things you might want to say. But I want you to go back to your rooms tonight and I want you to think about that. In what ways am I a true New Testament disciple? In what areas in my life does the Lord want to work on? And I want you to know you're a lot younger than me. I'm probably twice older than most of all of you, if not. I just want you to know just because I'm up here at this side of this desk, preaching God's Word doesn't mean I don't have needs in my own heart. Many of my messages are born out of the needs of this fellow right here. He has lots of needs. And I want you to pray for me. And I'm going to pray for you. God bless you.